Let's consider now, if we could, Genesis, the 13th chapter, and then Acts 11, verse 23, and we'll continue with our study then today. I'm reading from the ESV version, which is different from the NIV that you probably have in your hands. John and I have a silent war that exists between the two of us. He continually is a proponent of the NIV, and I'm continually a proponent of the ESV. Uh, I cannot help it that he has been reluctant to receive the true inspired translation, but (laughs) perhaps at some point in time he will embrace it as I have. So it'll, it'll differ, the content is the same. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. There Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the Lord could not support both, so that the land rather could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from them, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I'll give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And then in Acts the 11th chapter, just this one verse, we will give it a context in our discussion. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Let's bow our heads together once again if we could. Father, now as we approach your throne of grace and consider your word of truth, I pray that your hand would rest upon each person that is here. Each of us have assembled together in this place with varied circumstances in our life and burdens and joys that are there. And Father, I pray this morning that you would touch each heart, that the measure of grace that is given here today would touch hearts and lives and give encouragement and direction. And Heavenly Father, I pray that your hand would rest upon me. Forgive me of my sins. I, I come to you every time realizing my unworthiness and my dependency upon you. There are no words that could ever be spoken from the human lips that would ever bestow upon you the honor and glory you are due. But I pray, Father, this morning that you would honor yourself with feeble words from my mouth. For I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of uh, 
of also introduction and explanation. John <coughs> intended to be away next week as he was going to a conference for the accreditation of uh, the seminary. And having, and, and I was going to speak for him then, having come down with the flu, he has canceled next week and called me uh, yesterday and asked me if I would uh, fill in with him for him. Uh, I'm dying to do this to John sometime when he calls me on a Saturday, because if he calls me on a Saturday, I, I know what the, the question is going to be. But to, but, but, but to pick up the phone and simply say, good morning, and then wait for the words to come from John's lips, Roger, I, I wonder if you'd speak for me tomorrow, and then I would continue by saying, you have reached the voicemail of Roger Melson. Please leave a message at the end of the tone, and I will get back to you sometime. <laughs> but I, I didn't have the opportunity to do that yesterday, but one of these days I, I, I'm going to do that in, in jest. Well, John will be joining with us later. Well, let's, uh, let's consider our, our, our text then uh, this morning. Last time when we were gathered together, we began by looking at Acts 11.23. And one of the reasons why we began there was because after persecution had come upon the church at Jerusalem, the church was scattered and there was this just tremendous uh, spiritual awakening that was going out into Asia Minor. It was a, such a rapid expansion of the spread of the gospel that those who were the leaders of the church in Jerusalem couldn't keep up with the movement. Uh, individuals were going everywhere, and they were sharing what it was that had happened in their lives, how Jesus Christ had, had come, and he had gone to Jerusalem, and he had gone to the cross, and he had died for their sins, and he rose again the the message of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and their lives were utterly transformed by believing in him. This tremendous spread of the gospel. And in Acts chapter 11, the word of God tells us that the gospel spread to Antioch. And Antioch were, was, was a city that was filled with Greeks, with Gentiles. And there was this tremendous move that was taking place. News of that came back to Jerusalem. And the leaders in Jerusalem wanted to verify that the work that was transpiring there was genuine. And so Cornelius, or not Cornelius, but Barnabas rather, was selected to go to Antioch and verify that that work was genuine. In other words, if, if anything was happening was, was not proper, was not right, if something needed to be set in order, it would have been Barnabas' responsibility to set it in order. Great care was given as the gospel was going out, so that the truth of the gospel was not distorted. So Barnabas goes to Antioch, and the word of God tells us in the 11th chapter, verse 23, that when he arrived there, he saw the grace of God. And we said last week, what does it mean to see the grace of God? It's a rather strange phrase, is it not? But he saw the grace of God. That simply meant that as he went there and he observed the people, he saw a testimony given to the glory of Christ, and it rang true. It was true. And not only did he see this with uh, his eyes by, by observing them proclaim, but he saw something that was evidenced in their lives. That's where the grace of God is seen. It's seen as it is evidenced in the lives of those who believe, even as we referred to, to Chris and Rogers just a few moments ago. The grace of God is seen. And we come then to Genesis, the 13th chapter, and we see here the outworking of God's grace. The outworking of God's grace in the life of Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, reminding you, refreshing your memory, Abram goes down to Egypt, and he, he falls because of his lack of faith in the Lord into the path of deceit and lying. And in the midst of this path of lying and deception, of drifting in his relationship to the Lord, God miraculously and sovereignly uh, comes down, and he, and he restores Abram. And Abram finds himself now on a new path, 
on a path of, of restoration, a path where there is an obvious evidence of the outworking of God's grace in his life. And we saw last week when we looked at this outworking of God's grace that the outworking or the evidence of God's grace being outworked in his life was evidenced by the fact that public worship was restored in the context of his life. He goes back to where he first had met the Lord or had encountered the Lord in Canaan. And there the scriptures tell us that he builds an altar. And when the scriptures speak of building an altar, it is a reference to public worship. He builds an altar there after leaving Egypt and coming back and God's grace is restoring him. And at that altar, we observed how it was that he repented. He asked God for forgiveness. There was this public confession of sin. And not only was there then a public confession of sin and recognition of failure, but also there was a proclamation of the significance of God's covenant. Whenever God makes covenant with people, there's always an explanation of that. There's a, a proclamation that accompanies that. And so there was, there was testimony, there were words, proclamation given as to the significance of what was transpiring there in the offering of this sacrifice. And we spoke last time when we were together the significance of public worship. I've mentioned it a number of times. It is, it is very critical, I believe, to the Christian community to see this important uh, factor in the life of believers, the life of God's people. Public worship, commitment to it, that is an evidence of God's grace working in our hearts. The second thing that we did not get to, but we're going to now begin today, is the grace of God in relationships, followed by discussing the grace of God resisted and then the grace of God and blessing. Let's look at the grace of God and relationships. Grace and worship deals with the vertical, does it not? But grace and relationships deals with the horizontal, and these things always go together in the context of the scriptures. We see it in the context of, of the Ten Commandments, which we've looked at before, that in the Ten Commandments there are two tables. There is the first table, which are the first four commandments, which deal with our vertical relationship with God, followed by the second table of the commandments, uh, the last six, which deal with our horizontal relationships. The, the vertical always leads the way in the context of the horizontal, never the other way around, which hum humanity, society endeavors to have it the other way around. They try to have the latter without having the former, and it always ends in tragedy, always ends up in, in, in falling short of what it should be. But rather, God foremostly deserves our honor and our worship and our attention. And then out of that, horizontally, relationships are impacted. And so it was that the Lord Jesus said when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, that which is the greatest commandment foremostly and firstly is that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and your mind and your strength. And then he followed it by the horizontal. And the second is like unto it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We see that as Abram went down into Egypt, there was a breakdown in this order. His faith drifted in his trust towards the Lord, which precipitated an action which was lying. And in the context of the lie, who was impacted by it? Individuals that were in the context of his family were impacted by that lie. The relationship vertically was sacrificed, and the relationship horizontally then followed and was sacrificed as well. Do you see it? And not only was that true in the context of his own family, and, and even the very promise that God had given Abraham, they're essentially being laid upon the altar to be sacrificed, to be just removed, to be canceled. Not only was that so, but then also the, the Pharaoh of Egypt was also impacted by this lie. You see, the, the vertical falters and the horizontal then falters as well. But when the vertical is in its proper place, then the horizontal comes back into its proper place. So Abram is offering this worship to the Lord. His relationship with God is restored. And as that relationship with God is restored, there are stirrings that are evident within his heart. 
as he expresses a love and concern horizontally in the context of his relationships. And we see that as it is evidenced here in verses, let me see if I can find it real quick, five and following. The word of God tells us here that Abram had many possessions, as did Lot, so that here are here is one people, but they're kind of divided into two camps. You know, Abram has his possessions, and Lot has his possessions. And while they have been in Egypt, these possessions have been uh, tremendously expanded and, and added to, and they come back to the land of promise, and they have this tremendous abus- abundance in the midst of their herds and their flocks and all the possessions they have. And these possessions are so abundant that they couldn't exist together. There was not enough land that was there to support them, fertile land that was there, and not enough grazing grass that was there, and not enough food to support them as they were together. And the scriptures tell us here in verse 7 that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land. It is trying to give us a picture of just this open area, and yet, even though it's an open area, it's, 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 it's being fully worked in, in a certain sense. They're not in the context of a walled city, but they're out there in the open, and the Canaanites and Perizzites, who are also there, attending their flocks and herds, they're nomadic people, they are in the land, and the land is filled, and, 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 and as they turn to the right or the left, they discover that their herds, Abraham, Abram's herds, and, and the herds of Lot don't have adequate grazing space. And the result is that the herdsmen begin to fight and to contend with one another, fighting over the land, fighting over the streams. Words of this, or news of this, comes to the ears of Abram. I, I don't know if Lot heard it or not, we're just told that that words certainly came at least to Abram, and he heard this dissension that was arising between their herdsmen. Now, the Word of God does not say that there was a dissension that arose between Abram and Lot. It says that dissension and conflict arose among their herdsmen. And so... With this contention, with this strife, with the news of it, Abram responds. He is the one who initiates action. And he goes to Lot. And he says, Lot, we we are kinsmen with one another. And it is not right that a conflict which is begun out here eventually trickles down to impact us so that there becomes strife between you and me. He's saying, we're kinsmen. He's saying, we are what? Family. We're family together. And family cannot argue with one another, cannot contend with one another, but they are to exist together in unity. Now, of course, we know that happens perfectly today in the context even of Christian circles, do we not? That there's, there's never any issues of strife or contention that arises. I, I find it interesting here that when they go to Egypt, they have want. They have want of food and they have want of water. When they come out of Egypt, they have everything that they want and they have with it contention and strife. That they have contention and strife in the midst of of abundance. And family unity is being threatened here. It shouldn't be. I can remember early on in ministry when I was dealing with people who were going through uh, the death of a loved one and dealing with wills. Has anyone been in that place? And, and people would come to me and they would tell me destructive behaviors in the context of families over 
a will over material possessions. I, and I was just kind of appalled that that could happen. I thought this, something like this could never happen, surely. And, and I remember always saying, that will never happen to me. You know, <laughs> that will never happen in my context, I'll tell you that. No. Until you get there and you experience it, you know. But there's, there's something so unnatural about it, isn't it? In the context of families, when there's a division and, and separation that takes place. Because it shouldn't be, and it shouldn't be in the context of the body of Christ. And Abram sees this. He knows this. He's, he's aware of the necessity of coexisting in love and unity with one another. And he is the one that initiates a resolve. That which will result in peace. Listen to what the Word of God has to say about peace. Romans, the 15th chapter, verse 23. God is a God of peace. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That identity. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Hebrews 12, verse 4. Strive for peace with everyone. James 3, verse 17. Wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect or complete. It's kind of interesting individuals to look at that verse. They, they think about being doing everything right. But if you look at the context of Matthew 5, 48, it's talking, the, the context is that of love. And so when it's saying being perfect, it's not saying dotting every I, crossing every T in terms of what I do or do not do in my life. He's saying be complete in love towards one another. As your Father is complete in His love. This concept of love and of peace. Psalm 133, verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity with one another. Well, we, we certainly know in the context of this world that there are times when we cannot be at peace, when certain circumstances dictate that it's impossible. The Apostle Paul said in Romans, once again, chapter 12, verse 18, as far as it lies within you, be at peace with one another. And I'm not going to address those issues this morning, but to emphasize the importance of peace. Abram is the first one that takes the step. You know, Abram was the elder of the two. And because he was the elder of the two, when it came time to have a resolve, which was to separate, he could have gone to Lot and said, you know, because our herdsmen are fighting and I can see that we're going to have problems I'm going to divide this land. I am the elder of the two of us, and it's my right to choose what I will have for myself and what you will have for yourself. After all, you've come along with me, and you are second to me. He could have said, God came to me, and he made a covenant promise with me, and you were living under the shelter of God's covenant promise with me. And consequently, I will choose. But what is it that he does? He goes to Lot and he says, let us not have any separation or quarrel with one another. You choose what you want. And if you choose the left, I will go to the right. If you choose the right, I will choose the left. Whatever you choose, you can have, and I will take what is left over. What we see in this is the evidence of God's grace, because is that not the life that Christ exhibited for us? 
He was the one who condescended. He left his home in glory and came down to earth. And he came down taking upon himself human flesh. But that was not it. He went down and down as he was rejected and reviled of men. Down and down as people deserted him. Down as he was upon the cross. Laying down his rights so that we might be united to him. He humbled himself and took the form of a servant. And this this is what Abram did in his relationship with Lot. He humbled himself. He humbled himself knowing that he was giving up what God had promised him that he would have. But he was willing to lay it down and still believe the promise of God. I I hadn't thought about this this morning. I'm going to just refer to it briefly. I was born in Indiana, and the first five years of my life, I was raised on a farm, and farming is what my father had always known. It was his life. It was his passion. He he bled farm, you know. That's the way it was. And and there came a point in time, without going into details, where jealousy arose in the context of his family. And my father, in order to keep peace in the family, sold his farm. He gave up everything he had. And he left Indiana and he went to Ohio. No job. Didn't know what he was going to do. Had a family to care for. And I can remember as a young child just how our parents shielded us from that, but how much we knew the sacrifice that had been made and how, what a struggle it was for our family. But my father was willing to give it up that he might maintain peace in the context of his family. It was a struggle that resulted in his life because of that. It could have happened another way, but you know how God greatly rewarded him because it was through that move and transition that took place in his life that he returned to his faith in Christ. I wonder if he hadn't gone through that if the end would have been the same. He was willing to lay down his rights. And in the context of our relationships with one another, in the body of Christ, in the context of our homes, the issue is laying down our rights. I think of some of the conflict that sometimes takes place in the context of homes. You know those real important things that you can argue over? Those things that are like, honey, I can remember you said this to me. And the response is, you never said that to me. Has that happened in the context? I told you this. And the response is, you never told me that. Or an account is being, something is being recounted. Well, I can remember when such and such happened. And the other person says, that never happened that way. And, you know, those really important things, you know, I, 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 I had a discussion with my sister this past week, confess my own sin, where, where, I, she was remembering something in a way that I thought was wrong, and I challenged her a little bit, and then after, after we talked a little bit farther, I, I realized that I was wrong. I should have just conceded to the very beginning. But you know, it's those, it's those little things that can come in the context of relationships that can divide and separate and can cause tension. And sometimes it can be significant. 
Because after all, it really is important what was said, right? After all, it is really important that how something happened happened that way and that the other person really see that they are wrong because you have it right and they have it wrong. <laughs> I am... Um, I am, I don't know how far to go with this, but I, I, am, I am so thankful for my relationship with Marsha because we really value peace in our home. When you've lived in a context where you've not had it, when you have it, you are grateful for it. And you will want to pursue peace, to keep peace. Harmony in the context of the home because when that is there, there is vitality and there's life that is there. And really, who really cares about who said what? Or whether something happened one way or it didn't. And I don't know, you, you can take it wherever it is you will, but you know, the, the scriptures talk about growing up in our salvation. It's, it's when these things come in and result in strife, it's kind of like being knocked down to a four-year-old again. You know, it's, it's not really growing up. In our salvation. And, and I'm, gra I'm grateful that in the context of our home that there's a desire on both of our parts to have peace with one another. And I, I don't know how many times a day or a week we will say to one another we're thankful for the peace that we have there. Peace is worth contending for. And it's an evidence of God's grace upon his people and working in their lives and in their hearts and a putting off of, of childishness in order that the grace and the life of God might be manifest in the context of a home. I, I pray that each of us here value peace in the context of our families and the context of our homes and we contend for it together to have it, that we might display the grace and love of God. It was so in Abram's life. He said, Lot, you take whatever it is you want, and I'll just take what's left over. Well, as our time is getting away very quickly, let's look at the next thing, then, if we can. And I know I, I'd, like, I'd like to be able to, to say more, perhaps, an application would be helpful, but I hope this is significant, helpful in, it, in itself. Not, nothing new, just perhaps a reminding us of things maybe that are important, that are important. But then we have grace resisted. It's like this dropped right in the middle of us so that we can see what God is doing in Abram's life and we can see what's happening in the context of Lot's life. It says in verse 10, if you could turn there, look there, it says, and Lot lifted, this, this, it's given to him, you, you choose what you want. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. It's kind of an interesting phrase. It starts off in verse 6. It says, Lot lifted his eyes. Now, do you remember where it was that we've seen that before in Genesis? You don't have to think very far to remember, because we're not really that far into Genesis. Only chapter 13. We don't have to go very far to remember that, yes, I've seen something about the eyes before. It happened in Genesis chapter 3 where Satan comes to Eve and it says there that Eve saw that the tree was good. She saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes. Lot looks upon the land and he sees that the land is good and it's a delight to his eyes. He sees that this land is well watered, enough water for his flocks and the grassy fields. Can you, can you see the wind blowing through the grass of the fields? And he looks at them and he says, oh, my sheep, they they can feed here upon this land and there's food that we can gain for the land to sustain our lives. Oh, he's, 
he's saying this and he's, he's I've got this choice. And, and then he remembers something else. He remembers Egypt. Yes, I remember when we went down to Egypt. And there were the cities and, and all of the culture that was there. But there was great expansion that we experienced there because the the, the land was well watered and our flocks fed there. And, and I remember how everything just grew. My possessions just grew in abundance when I was there. And he remembers that and he thinks, I will choose this portion for myself because I know that if I choose this portion, my herdsmen will have for my flocks everything that they want. He sees this with his eyes. And so, the word of God says in verse 11, he chose for himself the Jordan Valley. Now the interesting thing here about this is, is Lot. Was Lot just this scathing bad guy? Was he, was he an unbeliever? Yeah. The word of God says, Lot was a righteous man. And Peter, it says his soul was vexed over what he saw taking place in the context of Sodom. And two times within the context of a verse or two, he is called a righteous man. Lot is a righteous man. He is a believer, but he chooses wrongly. He chooses because he sees things after the manner of the world. Now, we don't have time. I wrote down an abundance of verses that address this issue. But the Word of God says that when we are believers, we do not look at things as the world looks at things. We don't reason or regard things after the flesh. But we regard things after the Spirit. That we desire God's will and purpose for our lives and we're not overtaken by the lusts and the desires of the flesh. The word of God says, Love not the world, neither the things of the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life or the pride of possessions is of the world. Now, there's nothing wrong with a gathering, but it's the attitude that we have in the context of the gathering. It's the attitude that we have towards these things, and it's the attitude that Lot has at this point. Because, he's not, because he is not taking into consideration some very critical things. He's not acknowledging that he is one who has a spirit that is from God, but he's looking after the flesh. And and what is it that he doesn't consider? He does not consider that if I choose going in this place, the faith of my family can be sacrificed. He looks at this situation surely, surely from a perspective of gaining, of gathering, of amassing to himself. His focus is upon this world, this context. What is it that it says there? It says that he went to the east. Well, that's a problem. Because the scriptures tell us whenever someone goes to the east, they're moving outside of the favor of God, like Adam and Eve were put out of the garden to the east. And Lot is going to the east. And the scriptures tell us that, I like the King James where it says, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He pitched his tent there. It gives to us an indication of what is driving, what is the driving context of his life. His life is there. His life is in this world. He's pitching his tent towards it. Perhaps he found some sort of consolation by saying, well, you know, I'm pitching my tent in that direction, but I'm not moving into the city. I'm just going near it. But when we follow the context of his life, we see what a slippery slope it is that he was on because it was not long as we follow the, just the, the history of his life that he's just does, he doesn't have his, tit, his pent, 
pitched, pitched, pitched toward Sodom. But he eventually is in Sodom. And now as he's been in Sodom for a while, he has daughters, and his daughters are betrothed in marriage to men who are of Sodom. And you follow the context, and eventually he is sitting at the gates of the city as a leader there. He is just fully enveloped by that lifestyle, by that focus of life. You see, it's the focus Preeminence given to the things of this world. And that's what exhibited, was exhibited in Lot's life. It was a slippery slope. And here was a man, we'll see eventually as we're going through the text, here was a man who at one point has everything. He has everything. But his life ends up with nothing. I'm reminded of the scriptures that tell us about being careful how it is that we build because we ourselves might be saved while everything else is burned. There was a lot of burning that took place in the context of Lot's life. What is the message to us? The message to us is this. Not to resist the grace of God. Not to look at this world after and the things of this world after the manner of this world. But in the constant context of our building our lives whatever is happening there Christ is always preeminent always and how will things affect us I, 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 I can you know we make choices young people make choices on mates college we make choices on vocation I remember hearing one guy say Ray Stedman said one time when we're, when we're youngest and least capable of making uh, decisions that are important, that's when we make the most important decisions of our lives. You know, we don't have, you know, we, we make choice of vacation and all these things when we're young and, and we don't have a lot of, of information upon which to draw. Counsel is critical to us and it happens that way. But in the, you know, I find myself now later in life and I, I don't have a lot of those choices to make. I, I feel like my life is being, is anyone with me? You, you, you feel like there's a narrowing that kind of begins to take place in the context of your life. I don't have all those things to decide about anymore. But no matter where we are in the context of life, we have been born of the Spirit, and therefore we function after the life that is in the Spirit, the decisions we make, and seek by God's grace and help to make our decisions that are in concert with His will and his purposes. I, I certainly uh, could not tell someone what to do or what not to do in decisions they make in their life, but our focus and our eye must always be trained appropriately and properly, which leads us to grace and blessing, the final point, because in verses 14 and following, the Word of God tells us what Abram's experience was. He was willing to sacrifice everything. Lot, you take whatever it is you want but I have the promise of God in my pocket. And the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, verse 14, lift up your eyes. Oh, it's one thing when Lot lifted up his own eyes, but it was something else when the Lord lifted up the eyes of Abram. And he said, I want you to look out and see this land that is before you. And this land that is before you will be yours. And you will have an inheritance that will come after you that will be like the dust of the earth. And if it could be counted, so could your inheritance be counted. And there Abram stood on that perhaps mountain looking out and looking to the east and to the west to north and south, seeing all that land. And God is saying, I'm going to give this to you. You know what, Abram? Let's go together and walk around this land. And wherever it is that you're putting your foot, that land is going to be yours. Now, what, what was happening when that was transpiring in Abram's life? Was Abram hearing God speak to him and standing there and just saying, man, 
I can't, I can't believe it. I mean, I'm, I'm looking off into the distance, and I'm just seeing that just land goes and, and goes and goes, and it's going to be mine. And it's going to belong to my children and their children's children. It's going to be my land. And walking through it and just thinking, oh, my, my, my project, they're going to live here. Is that what was going on in his life? Is that what he was seeing? Something physical represented to him? I suggest to you that that's not what at all Abraham saw when he saw the land. When he walked around the land. Because the word of God tells us that Abraham was looking to a city. What? Whose builder and maker was God. Do you know what he saw when he looked upon that land? He saw a type. He saw a physical representation. And he said, this is a type of what eternity will be like. That this land will be filled with the people of God. And they will have no want. And they will have abundance. And we will dwell in the city of God. You see what the physical eye was seeing, the spiritual eye was seeing far beyond. The word of God tells us that when Moses was called of God to leave Egypt, he chose the persecution with the people of God over being the child or the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But it goes on to say this. It says in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What was he seeing? He was seeing Christ. That captured his vision. Christ. I love Proverbs there. Once again, I, I like the ESV. I'm not down in the ESV because I'm referring to the King James twice this morning. But Proverbs, the 8th chapter, verse 21 says, God says that I may cause them that love me to inherit substance. Those that love God inherit substance and the substance that they inherit is Christ we count all things loss that we might gain Christ we look not upon the things of this world to those things that are seen but we look to those things that are unseen Today, Roger sees what is unseen to us. The vision of Christ that has been before him in the context of his life, realized for him now, is still pursued by us who remain behind. That our focus is to look upon Christ, to seek him, to gain him, to gain him through our intercessions, to gain him through our concerning the word of God, to gain him in our gathering together, that our focus is Christ, that our vision is singularly placed upon him, to gain Christ. Knowing that if all of the world is stripped from us, if we have Christ, we have all that we need and all that can fill us. In the days of Scotland, when there was persecution coming upon those who believed. And people were being put to death if they would not recant their faith. There is an account of two women. One a little bit older than the other. One who was, I guess basically you could say, was discipling the other. 
And they were approached by the religious authorities of their day to recant, recant their faith. And they, they would not recant their faith. And so it was determined that they would be taken to the shores of the ocean and there would be two posts that would be placed in the ocean. One would be placed farther out and one a little closer. And for the older person, she was taken out and she was tied to the post that was furthest most out. And the younger one was tied to the one that was closer to the shore. As time passed, you can imagine what happened. The tide began to come in. And as the tide was coming in, those who were putting them to death or persecuting them said, recant your faith, recant your faith, but they would not. And eventually the water came in and it, was, it began to, to sweep over the older one who was farthest out. And those in charge looked at the younger and they said, look, look there. What see you there? Recant your faith. What is it that you see? And she looked at her friend and she said, I see Christ. I see Christ. Because there was a woman who was willing to give up what this world had to offer because she knew she was gaining Christ. And we can be singular because his spirit is alive within us, ever drawing us to himself, ever exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, and ever making him the one who possesses our souls and whom our souls possess. Let's pray. Father, today as I stand here, I, I know I, I do not seek you as I should. Stir in my heart, O oh Lord. And by way of reminder, stir in the heart of each person that is here a love for Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you for salvation, O oh Lord. And Father, in our lives, May the outworking of your grace be ever evident. For we ask this in Christ's name.